I'm Matt Booker. I'm Dave Laird, and welcome to episode 61 of Concavity Show. Well, Matt, how's it going, bud? Good to be back, Dave. We have a Good to be. very special episode today. I'm very excited about it. We do. It doesn't sound that exciting right now because it's just the two of us so far. However, we recently were joined by three very special guests to record, I would say, what was you know, a pretty memorable conversation with one of the great living American authors, Steve Erickson. For sure. I was very excited to... Uh, you know, get the opportunity to have him on our show. Uh, I think that he is yep. an under um, appreciated author uh, and not as well known as he should be. So mm-hmm. it's really totally. uh, a dream to have someone as accomplished as him and, you know, someone who I really admire on the show. And, you know, not only, like you said, do we have a really special guest for this episode, we also have. Um, special two special guest interviewers um, mm-hmm. who are both the editors of a new volume out from the University of Mississippi Press called Conversations with Steve Erickson. And like all the other books in the series, it is a collection of interviews uh, with a prominent author. Um, mm-hmm. And you know we're familiar with the conversations with David Foster Wallace book edited by Stephen Byrne. Um, that was actually the first uh, non-Wallace Wallace book that I ever bought. Wow. I was in Powell's Bookstore in Portland, Oregon in 2012, and uh, I saw Conversations with David Foster Wallace, and I was like, whoa, what is this? And I saw The Legacy of David Foster Wallace. Uh, Lee Constantinos edit- edited that, Sam Cohen. And so I bought both of them on the spot, and those were like my intro to Wallace studies, hmm. basically. There's also, I was looking at the website for this series. It's nuts. There's like tw- there's like 18, 20 pages on their website of all the titles. There's also conversations with Don DeLillo, Paul Oster, Flannery O'Connor, Kurt Vonnegut, Toni Morrison, Volman, Legin, Allen Ginsberg, <laughs> Colson Whitehead, Nabokov, Lethem, Eudora Welty. Like, it's just, it's endless. And it's all really really great it, it is and the interviews are really top-notch you know they've been edited they come from a variety of sources um, in mm. this book with Steve Erickson there are interviews multiple with um, Michael Silverblatt also with the Believer magazine um, mm-hmm. interviews Larry McCaffrey. Larry McCaffrey Rick Moody familiar face um, yeah. Joshua, Joshua Cohen. Cohen Alec Baldwin even has one and that's actually one of my from favorites, his podcast right? here's the thing it's really good isn't it um, yeah. if you haven't listened to Alec Baldwin's podcast which I think is now defunct called here's the thing I really like it I think Alec Baldwin is a good yeah. interviewer a good conversationalist um, mm. and he really had a great time obviously with Steve Erickson on the show yeah um, so anyways you get a good selection of these interviews and Today, in a way, we're really contributing to that with having Steve Erickson um, be interviewed by the editors <laughs> of the Conversations with Steve Erickson book. 
So it's yeah, Mike. I think either Mike or Matt joked after that um, this this interview will be in volume two of the conversations. <laughs> <That's after right. laughs> uh, it's a little late to fit it into the, to the initial. So one. Matt and Mike are not only friends of the show, have been on this show multiple times. They're both prominent mm-hmm. scholars in their own right. Have multiple books. Have you know done yeah. many conference papers on David Foster Wallace. Published. Um, articles and prominent journals on Wallace. Uh, Matt Luter is also the author of Understanding Jonathan Lethem. Um, mm-hmm. And Mike Miley has a new book uh, out last year or the year before Yeah, last uh, year, called Truth and Consequences, which is about game shows in fiction and film. Um, yeah. So the, those books are incredible and really just, you know, they span a broad variety of topics uh, as does Erickson himself in his fiction and Mm -hmm. in our bonus episode we also have a bonus episode for our Patreon subscribers Uh, Mm -hmm. we talk about uh, we ask Steve Erickson his favorite novels and I would say you Mm -hmm. and I do that part of the interview so yes so it's kind of a two-parter but um, Mike Miley and Matt Luter handle the like big main talk about his body of work and influence and all that. Right. Stuff. And part of the reason we wanted to invite them on the show too, is like, you know, I don't consider myself to be a Steve Erickson expert and I sure. have not, Same. you know, read all of his books and everything that he's written. He's written a ton. He's got totally. 10 books, yeah. uh, two nonfiction books and a lot of political journalism he has a degree in journalism Mm -hmm. he's written for years for decades for la weekly um film Mm -hmm. reviews blog stuff i mean he's a very prolific writer and yeah he was a ucla film studies major too so like he's he's got like a really broad background right and he's an la writer uh mike miley used to live in la and so he it's just a golden opportunity for us to have people who are experts to do this interview, this conversation mm-hmm. with him. Um, and, you know, we, as I was listening to this interview, I really felt like as a fan of what I have read of Erickson's book, and we discussed his book, Shadow Bond, extensively in 2018 mm-hmm. in our year in list. Um, and then in 19, because then I read it after you mentioned right, it. Okay. And, and it was like my favorite book that I right. read that year. Um, <laughs> yeah. And and we've you know we've discussed his work some here, um, but it's it's like I say just really great to have people who are true experts in it and mm-hmm. in interviewing him and f- their familiarity with every interview question he's ever been asked. Um, yeah, you know we couldn't pass up the opportunity to kind of put two <sighs> and two together there. Exactly, totally. And so yeah. before we get into the, the main interview today with Steve Erickson, I did want to read a bit for people who aren't familiar with his work or have never um, heard him interviewed before. I wanted to give a little bit of context from the introduction um, to the Conversations book, uh, which is co-written. The introduction is co-written by Mike Miley and Matt Luter. Uh, so if it's okay, I'm just going to dig into that a bit. Mike and Matt write, Erickson's obscurity comes in part from the difficulty of categorizing his work neatly within current trends in fiction, and in part from the wide variety of concerns that populate his writing, literature, music, film, politics, history, time, and the multifaceted city of Los Angeles. 
His unique dream-fueled blend of European modernism, American pulp, and paranoid late-century metafiction makes him simultaneously essential to an appreciation of the last 40 years of American fiction and difficult to classify within that same realm. He is at once thoroughly of his time and distinctly outside it. These are movies that make no sense at all, and we understand them completely. That's a quote. In defining what he calls the cinema of hysteria, the film critic who narrates Amnesioscope, Erickson's most autobiographical novel, may as well be summarizing Erickson's own aesthetic. The critic's commitment to hysterical film in what seems a hysterical age emphasizes how Erickson's own work operates more through the logic of lucid dreams than linear causes and rational effects. In an age riddled with uncertainty, the narrator continues, the undercurrent of the age pulls us to an irrational truth for which only an irrational cinema is sufficient. Similarly, while Erickson's work does not offer art as an easy solution to all that ails a soul or a nation, it does posit that fiction is necessary to an understanding of our shared chaotic present and vice versa. So I thought that was a great passage from the introduction. I think it totally. really does um, <laughs> kind of summarize how Erickson's uh, preoccupations with uh, dreams, with L.A., mm -hmm. with movies, with music, with uh, kind of the soul of America. And mm -hmm. we get into all of that in the interview. Thanks to totally. uh, Mike Miley and Matt Luter for Huge leading thanks. this discussion, for putting this book together. It's really an honor yeah. to have all three of them on our show here. Totally. It's a great read. Uh, and a fun fact is that this book, the week that it came out, uh, it was the number one new release in postmodern literary criticism on Amazon. Not that we want to promote Amazon uh, on the show, but like, you know, that's pretty cool that they, that they hit the top of the charts there. Yeah, it does tell you a lot about, <laughs> um, you know, I think about Erickson's popularity. And sure. He is truly a living legend in a lot of ways, a, a master of his craft. He teaches creative writing at University of California, Riverside. Um, he also founded the journal Black Clock back in, I think, 2004, when shortly after David Foster Wallace had moved to Pomona, California, and he, Wallace contributed a story to Erickson's journal, Black Clock, which is named after Tours of the Black Clock. And that story was Oblivion, and we do talk about that mm -hmm. a bit in the interview, yeah. I believe. So, Yeah, it comes up. Yeah, Erickson's gotten acclaim from writers like Pynchon, Wallace, uh, Lethem, uh, Dana Spiota, Haruki Murakami. Wallace called Erickson, Erickson the cream of the crop. So that's a pretty good endorsement. Um, and uh, I haven't seen the film for Zeroville, but in 2019, James Franco, Seth Rogen, Megan Fox, Danny McBride, uh, Craig Robinson starred in an adaptation of Erickson's book, Zero, Zeroville. Have you seen that? Uh, no, but I, based on the reviews, yeah. I would recommend the book over the movie. Yeah, that's sort of the sense I got to poking around looking at that. It's, uh, it's James um, Franco. Not a huge fan, to be honest with you. <laughs> uh Matt Luter texted us the next day after this interview, and uh, in which Matt and I were present for it. We just hit mute on our 
and we didn't record ourselves at all. So we just like sat back and, and just watched the three of them talk and it was great. And it was also challenging to do that, to not try and jump in because I had like a lot of, a lot of thoughts, right? Um, but Luder texted our group and he said, it is only now dawning on me that like we interviewed one of the greatest living American novelists last night. And we were all just like, yep, that's, <laughs> that's pretty right on uh, for what happened. So. so enjoy. We hope you like it. And we have a little bit more uh, after the interview. And yeah, we will let Mike. We'll see you then. We'll be back in a bit for some housekeeping. I'm Mike Miley, and uh, we're here with Steve Erickson to talk uh, in part about the collection of interviews that Matt Luter and I put together called Conversations with Steve Erickson that's out now. But more excitingly, there's a new work of Erickson's that we have to talk about that is not covered in the collection, and that is a, a work online called American Stutter. And so I thought it would be great to start off talking about that work in particular and then use that as a as a window into the rest of of your work Steve because I think it is a really good um, a good introduction uh, to uh, a lot of the concerns that run throughout your work uh, but also one that I think gives readers a really timely uh, entry point into sort of uh, in into your ideas because it's things that are happening now but things that have been concerning you for, for decades. Uh, and I, what I'm wondering about, I guess, to start is simply uh, just how did American Stutter come about? Well, first of all, Mike and Matt, I want to thank you guys for doing the book. I really appreciate it. I want to thank you for doing this interview. I really appreciate that. Um, American Stutter began as a journal, and to those who read it, it's still in journal form. Um, it was um, it was sort of long and rambling, and uh, it was the product of uh, things that were going on in my life and things that were going on in the life of the country, and uh, this sort of this general sense of unraveling if you will, um, both uh, personally and, um, and nationally. And uh, I had no um, thought of it necessarily being a bigger work later. In fact, I kind of made a point of, of um, jettisoning that possibility because I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to be running to that end. I just wanted to put down what I was really thinking and what I was really feeling about um, uh, about uh, things going on, and uh, and then later on, it um, you know I I wound up cutting it by quite a bit. I think that what's what you see now is probably about twenty five percent of what I wrote, uh, in part because. I was, there were times when I was repeating myself and there were times when I was getting into uh, into weeds that nobody cares about right now you know uh, you know Bernie Sanders won such and such a percentage of the Latino vote in the Nevada caucus that kind of thing that I didn't think was going to be especially relevant to uh, to readers now because I wasn't writing a campaign book as such I was writing what I hoped was a bigger story about not just the campaign, about not even just Donald Trump, 
but about um, but about America and you know a, a key line for me in in the journal was that um, you know Donald Trump didn't happen to America America happened to America and that this has been coming for a while yeah and I guess to give uh, listeners a, a, a broader context yeah the American Center is a literally a journal of, uh, I guess, starting in the fall of 2019, I guess, is where it, where yeah, it begins. Summer. And the then uh, yeah. going up until right now, or I guess yesterday's, uh, when I looked at it, the most recent entry was for August 6th, right? right? Um, and so, yeah, it winds up being a really raw uh, work where, yeah, it, it does bear some resemblance to uh, your campaign work like uh, like Leap Year and American Nomad, but also has the feel of something like Amnesia Scope, um, but even uh, some right. of the the more yeah. recent novels uh, as well. And so, um, I guess the another thing to ask about that is in in the editing process of of paring it down, uh, what um, what sort of guided the the decisions? Uh, so you're you're talking about on the one hand things not wanting things to be in the weeds too much but was the were you writing a and the emotion more in uh in ch- what to choose to keep or uh, how did you how did you go about paring it down you know it was pretty much a question of what i thought the reader would still care about and what you know what the big picture was and to the extent that my own story uh you know um uh interweaves with the political story um, I felt like you know that was important insofar as it informed the other that is uh, I didn't want this to be to be any more indulgent than it had to be and um, and those are those are the kinds of uh, decisions that I think any writer winds up making about any kind of a book um, and and decisions that almost necessarily get harder the the longer you're you're working on the work because you're getting closer and closer to it and um, you're you know you're struggling more and more to maintain the perspective that um, that is going to best serve you know what it is you want to say to the reader. And I'm interested in it also not just in terms of content, but also form, right? Uh, Because it is doing this really interesting thing of of starting in the, starting very close to the present and then going back to 2019, working forward. It's guided by, I I love that metaphor of the, the, how do we pronounce this word? Hallucinics? Sure. Yes. Sure. <laughs> Why not? Which I mean, uh, we're not certain how to pronounce it because it it may or may not be a fictional word, right? So and so we get some of these kind of surreal touches creeping in, also. So how how do you arrive at while keeping it in this diary form something that also sort of is letting fiction creep in, um, is, is playing with yeah. chronology a little bit. What guides those formal choices as much as the content ones? Right. And I mean, as I think you might imagine, 
it kind of comes naturally <laughs> to me to to mix the the fictional and the non-fictional. Um, and uh, I, you know, if I if I had to explain a strategy behind it, I guess it would be that uh, uh, no readers should ever take any narrator uh, entirely at face value. That all all narrators are. Um, are to some extent at least a little bit unreliable and um, and also because you know I, I, I tend to sometimes think uh, impressionistically rather than um, historically or um, even in a, in a purely literary sense so you know a, a, as to you know the decisions of, of what to keep and what to lose and uh, when to um, when for the larger thing to take this form or that form. The longer that you know a person does this, and I've been doing it a while now, the more I think those choices become um, instinctive, and uh, uh, the writer responds to those those decisions instinctively, um, and then and then may question himself as to why. You know, why is my instinct telling me to make make this particular choice? So it's n not all entirely either rational or or irrational. Um, you know, one of the things that I, you know, I, I teach students is that, um, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna be a writer, first of all, you probably better be in it for the long haul. Uh, that uh, one of the things you learn is how to trust your instincts, and the other thing you learn is how to distinguish your instincts from your ego. Uh, so that uh, if your instincts are telling you you're always right. Uh, then, um, then they're lying, <laughs> and and you've got you've got to know, you know, when when that is the case and when it isn't. Sure. Well, that's especially hard, I guess, in a piece that is so thoroughly personal, right? That the the instinct and the ego. It's very personal, and and yes, that that's exactly true. The you know the collision between instinct and ego and who am I being fair to and who am I not being fair to and at least a lot of the time if not most of the time am I am I being toughest on myself or am I willing to be toughest on myself because if I'm not then I, I I'm not sure I've earned the uh, the right to be the right to uh, to judge others in the work. I'll tell you also that, that 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 intensity of it that you're kind of speaking to there was one of the things that really struck me the most about American Stutter. It is, um, I think it would be fair to say, uh, uh, at times a pretty uh, angry piece of writing, but very righteously so. Right. Um, there's anger at exploitation, at racism, at uh, poor leadership, um, but anger is is difficult to write about, is risky to write about. Um, right. So how do you approach it? Uh, 
Yeah, it's a great question, and um, I, I don't have a pat answer for it. I, except to, you know, to ask whether the anger was called for, and uh, most of the time I thought it was, um, and you know, and to at least uh, try and balance that um, that out outwardly directed anger with some you know interior examination and you know to what extent am I um, am I culpable in something and that wasn't always clear to me you know and 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 part of the the you know the inward journey of this thing was was figuring that out and do you feel like by the end that writing this piece helped clarify the this this past year and a half or any of these events or maybe clarify particular ones and others remain a mystery uh i mean because certainly trying to make sense of the last 18 months is yeah. is a pretty tall order um yeah. and other than to simply be upset about it uh but do you feel like you've uh, reached a clearer vision of any of it at this point um well, if I have, it's not, it's not a better vision. I mean, it's a, it's a um, you know, and I, I try to check against just, you know, glib pessimism because I hear a lot of that. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, the, uh, look, the novelists are, are predisposed to being melodramatic and apocalyptic novelists are predisposed <laughs> to being apocalyptic. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, but the reality is, without melodrama and without a, a, you know a, apocalypse, I think that you know democracy is in a, a somewhat dire place right now. I, I think that uh, a lot is at stake. I think that um, the next uh, few years are going to um, are going to tell the tale. I, I spent some of the time reading other histories about other other um, other uh, burgeonings, if you will, of, of authoritarianism or even fascism. And uh, so I think I may have just gained more clarity on that more than anything else, getting back to that, that visceral quality of it. I just, I felt the need to address all this. And so, you know, when I had finished this, for instance, and, and, and and New York publishers were hinting that, well, you, you really need to kind of tone things down or especially given the post-pandemic bottleneck of publishing right now, maybe we'll get this out in 2023. That just didn't cut it. You know, I, I just, I, 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 and that's why I made the choice, for instance, to, um, to publish it on online at, at the site Journal of the Plague Year, which is a, an online magazine. It doesn't preclude that at some point later I, I, it couldn't come out in, in some kind of print form, but um, I, I need, this was something I felt driven to say and that I felt driven to tell people not, um, not uh, presuming for a moment that what I say necessarily matters to anybody. I think that that all remains to be seen. 
Well, and I certainly think that going through it in the form that it's in certainly captures this the feeling of reliving it. I know that the the three uh, or the four of us when we've been reading it and rereading it have just been commenting on, oh God, that happened this year too. Right. Oh, yeah. right, there was this in the reading it in the form that you have it. Really, it does feel like one thing after another, yeah. but also these things that had been forgotten or suppressed, right. sort of resurfacing, and yeah. we're we really are reliving the year right. alongside you. Uh, even and sort of remembering things we don't want to remember um, and even that um, it's it's rough it's rough going but it also has a, yeah. a bit of a catharsis in a weird way to kind of ex- re-experience it and realize okay I did that did all happen to me and I am still here trying to make sense of it right. yeah 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 I the you know um, often the the um, the material dictates the form, and it just seemed clear to me to leave it in the form of a journal, for all the reasons that you just um, alluded to. That um, the the sense of of uh, the sense of unfolding and this kind of astonished, or maybe a better word is stupefied, a sense that so much of this went down over these last two two years and that we're still in the throes of a lot of it if, if not all of it i mean whether it's the pandemic or racism or the the fate of democracy itself and particularly the sense that all of that was getting intertwined that that there was right. uh, because because these things are connected and and it was um when I think about that year, it is striking, and, and, and reading this really brought it back, how those sort of parallel strands of we've got a pandemic, we've got an election, we've got reckoning with racial uh, injustice and history, all of that happening simultaneously. The intensity of that, yeah. And that, and that, I, and that I think also, uh, in a way I'm not sure I can totally articulate, but all, all of that sort of justified in my mind putting it to some extent in the context of, of my real life because I knew that everybody was leading real lives. We were all leading lives where there were things going on, big things going on, some of which had nothing to do with all the rest of that, but some of which did. And and the the underlying tension of so much of it that between individualism and a sense of a shared societal duty, yeah, exactly, uh, the social contract. Um, and I think you you capture a lot of that really well in the sense of well, what can a, how helpless an individual can feel, especially when they are uh, imbued with such a sense of civic duty, or right. you know, I, I think you capture that incredibly well in and we're we're experiencing that in a a region where we've been in a country we've been brought up to think like oh well that's you know your feeling of citizenship is sort of like is enough right or that your your the work that you do in there is going to be what makes it great and you know and sort of hitting a moment when that isn't enough 
right? Right. Um, yeah. And then that, it reminds me uh, too, I guess, what the way that you're you're talking about uh, when when Matt brought up the idea of all of these things being intertwined. I think this is something in your work that you often don't get enough credit for is the way that you have shown so many of these things to be intertwined throughout your career, whether that's in Arc to X or, uh-huh. uh, you know, or in Tours of the Black Clock or the, uh, so many of the works that where you have real life historical events brushing shoulders with, with the fictional. Um, so often it, it intersects around ideas of nation, ideas of race, uh, and then the, uh, the, uh, the sense of the fantastic or the impossible happening, which is all of those things I could just as well be describing 2020 uh, and, right. and describing American stutter. And so, I mean, this is something that, you know, maybe the, the real world counterpart of it is very new uh, to, to people, but not necessarily new to your readership uh, and, right. and to your work. And I'm, I guess, cause your work has often been sort of about that intersection between the, the fictional past and the more kind of real seeming, received historical past and since it's been something you've been working on for so long uh, what about that intersection um, interests you particularly or what about it is is so important well i i think that i'm more inclined to think that psychodrama creates history rather than the other way around i mean you know the the the, the Marxist view, and I'm not a Marxist, but the Marxist view is that we're all um, the product of uh, history, and there is some truth in that. But I think it's just as true, if not more true, that history is the product of, of us. And, and all of these, um, you know, all of these psychodramatic events that are, are u- unique to us. I mean, in a book like, uh, especially the one that comes to my mind, Tours of the Black Clock, history is very much driven by, you know, what what is happening on this uh, this primal level um, in individual lives, and um, and America in particular, you know, feels like a, a a good example of that. Going back to you know, as as you mentioned, um, that uh, you know that that baked-in conflict between the individual and the social, um, uh, and, and a conflict that never really gets reconciled, and maybe it shouldn't be reconciled. You know, maybe there there is no easy pat reconciliation, and and maybe that is what. Um, Maybe that's what makes America unique. And it remains to be seen, seen whether it's also, you know, what ultimately dooms America. If, if, you know, whether or not it can reconcile that conflict between our individual histories and the, the history that, that we hold in, in, in common. So I... Um, you know, a, a, a lot of this, you know, is a lot of the, the fiction, as you say, does take place at that, uh, at that intersection um, um, among, among history and culture and uh, identity and uh, individuality. And it's just a theme that, that has come, has come, um, naturally to me 
you know, and wh why that is, you know, I, I probably need to go to a therapist for, but um, uh, it's, it sort of has been a part of the work from, from the beginning. Well, I, I have I have several kind of questions I want to go to uh, from from there, but uh, the one that I've been wanting to ask for quite a long time that hasn't popped up into the into a lot of the interviews that we see in the in the collection that I'm I'm really curious about is you know of all the major American historical events that you will write about, whether that's that's Jefferson or uh, or whether in the case of Shadowbond the events around the Kennedy assassination or 9-11. Uh, one that you return to frequently uh, is the Robert Kennedy assassination. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, it was in Rubicon Beach. It's in mm -hmm. These Dreams of You. Um, yeah. I think you might also speak about it in some of the campaign um, mm -hmm. work. And it's interesting to me because in both in Rubicon Beach and in These Dreams of You, that event gets uh, positioned as a critical hinge point of sorts in American history. And, but generally in the, I guess in the general public mind, the Kennedy assassination that is the hinge point is John Kennedy's assassination. Right. And so I wanted to ask you about why, at least in your fiction, you seem to see uh, a different, uh, a different Kennedy assassination as a, a, a significant turning point. That is a great question that I don't recall anybody else asking me. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I'm traditional enough to believe that that all good writing, however, whatever form it takes, whatever, however experimental it may strike some, and as you may know by now, that's a <laughs> word I really hate. But um, I think that most good fiction is character driven. And if you're a novelist, Robert Kennedy is easily the most fascinating of the Kennedys because he's the guy who changes. And he's the guy who starts out one, one thing and by the time he dies, he's become very much a different sort of man, in part changed by that earlier hinge of his brother's assassination. So I, you know, um, from, from a, I don't know that I, I would argue that uh, you know Robert Kennedy's assassination was more important historically than John's assassination was, but from a dramatic standpoint, dealing with um, dealing with a more complicated character who was more reflective, I think, of the changes that America was going through in the 1960s. Um, Robert Kennedy it was, was, is more interesting to me than any of, uh, of, of the others, maybe even more interesting than any public figure I can think of in the 1960s in, in both positive ways and negative ways. And I found myself, um, I find myself as a writer, just as a novelist, you know, trading in, in drama, if you will, I find myself uh, drawn to to him um, uh, because um, because of that of, of of really profound changes that you certainly don't see in most uh, uh, political figures. And in terms of the the '68 campaign, which was obviously cut short by his assassination. Um, 
You know, he, he ran the kind of campaign that you just never see now, which is to say he would go to audiences and tell them the thing they did not want to hear. You know, he would go to white audiences and make the case for black rage. He would go to black audiences and make the case for white skepticism. Um, you know, he would, he would tell white audiences, you know, how can you expect, you know, an African-American, not that they used that term then, but how can you expect a black American to react any other way to hopelessness? And he would go to uh, black audiences and say, you know, if you're going to burn down your own neighborhoods, what makes you think white people are going to pay attention? He would ask these really hard questions in front of exactly the kind of uh, audience that that question needed to be asked to. Um, and on a presidential level, I am hard pressed to think of another major campaign that was like that. And you, you have to wonder, you know, had he lived, had that campaign gone, had that campaign gone on, where it would have wound up and what it would have said about America in winding up there. I, I do really enjoy hearing you sort of describe these sort of historical events as symbolic moments and as even as things that sort of start to take on um, power just as uh, an abstract idea or an image uh, within a piece of fiction. Right. And this happens so often in your work, not just with, with historical moments, but with um, putting to use other earlier artworks, earlier images. And, and there are so many things we see in your work where there's um, maybe a uh, really strong single image that a novel's built around, like um, like the beheading in Rubicon Beach, like the Twin Towers in, in Shadowbond. But there's also a lot of things where there is an earlier text that figures really strongly. Um, in Zeroville, there's all of the the fantastic discussion of A Place in the Sun, of Passion of Joan of Arc, uh, Ocean and Doa in Shadowbond. How do you sort of choose or settle on something like that? If you're, if you're going to, in such a really interesting way, lean really hard on a single historical moment or existing text, where does the, okay, yep, it's A Place in the Sun. How does that sort of thing happen? Yeah. Yeah, well, that that does really get us into the language of instinct, uh, and then later on, you know, I, I you know, part of the process of writing the novel is figuring out, you know, where that image of the twin towers reappearing in the Badlands came from, or why did it come to me? What does it mean? Because these things do lend themselves to metaphor, you know. Um, and most great historical events pretty easily lend themselves to metaphor. A lot of times it will be a matter of, uh, of finishing a novel and it's gone to press and it's been published. And six months later, I think of something that I could have included. And that becomes the, uh, the germ of, of the next thing. 
and um, I mean, especially as as I get older, I, I I've learned I don't jump on these little inspirations or brainstorms right away. I let them kind of percolate in my brain for a while. I need to, you know, gather the the the, the psychic energy to. Um, to uh, to to write a book, which is an an endeavor. And sometimes it's easier, and sometimes it's harder. A lot of times, as, as I was saying before, you know, in character-driven fiction, the characters make decisions for me. You know, uh, um, there was something about a place in the sun that uh, made sense being tattooed on that guy's head. Uh, I, I, I like A Place in the Sun, but it's not one of my 10 favorite movies. I'm not sure it's one of my 50 favorite movies, but there was something about this guy um, that it made sense for him to have um, Elizabeth Taylor and, and Montgomery Clift on, on his head. And, and a lot of those choices that are, uh, are talked about in the novel are talked about because I, I thought they they would tell us something about uh, they they would tell the reader something about the character, um, as opposed to telling necessarily telling the reader something about me or or my my personal taste. So the, these some of these things are are intuitive. Some of them are dictated by the material itself as it unfolds. You know, I do subscribe to the idea that, you know, I, 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 I write a novel to find out what it's about in the same way the reader reads it for that reason, uh, at which point I then have to go back often and, and, and do a lot of rewriting and readdressing. Um, and uh, and there, there always comes a point in the writing of the novel or the rewriting or the rewriting of the rewriting or the rewriting of the rewriting of the rewriting when you have to say this is enough you know i, I I'm, I'm going to i'm going to think this thing to death if if i don't let go of it and it that that sometimes is a harder thing to do than 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 you might think well and i i do love the you speak a lot about this in the in the interviews in the collection about how you do sort of write kind of blind without an outline and then in the you can see also how in the rewriting you're able to preserve that feeling while also having this in sort of intense continuity of of images of oh. and, and you know symbols and things like that that make it feel sort of simultaneously spontaneous and completely planned out uh and it, i don't know of that many other reading experiences that are like that um and something I wanted to ask to follow up on Matt's uh, question about the the texts, um, some of the your novels like Zeroville and Shadowbond also have these. In addition to dealing with uh, real texts like real films or real songs in the world, also have these um, sort of almost mythic uh, ur texts that mm -hmm. all of those texts are a part of or are you know contributing to. Uh, I'd love to hear 
you say more about that? Do you, I guess this is the corny way to ask it, but do you believe that there is an Ur text? <laughs> are you looking, are you looking for one in yourself uh, or how, um, cause that comes about in, in lots of your, of your work. So uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, you know, I'm, I'm drawing, always drawing from the same stream of consciousness or the stream, same stream of unconsciousness as it will. And so, Sure, you know, the, there's, there, there is a commonality, and uh, you could call it an urtext. Another interviewer in one of the interviews that you guys included in your book calls it the, the, uh, the multiverse of the, uh, of, uh, the novels, and, and that stuff has always come naturally to me. You know, to, to, to kind of keep drawing from that, that same stream. Now, you know, the, the frightening thing <laughs> if you're a novelist is that as you get older and as you write more novels, that stream gets narrower and narrower and narrower and, and, and runs more and more slowly. And, you know, um, I, I, I'm afraid I, I do believe that inspiration is finite and uh, the 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 well will not continue bubbling up at the same velocity forever but um but i keep drawing from it and beyond that i you know i i'd love to tell you i had some kind of master plan you know up on uh, up on the wall you know that i but it, it's not like that and um and it, a, a lot of these things you know, are um, are kind of subconscious. I have certainly had the experience of people asking me about connections between my books that I was not aware of. You know, you got you got this guy doing this on page one thirty nine of this book, and this guy doing the same thing on page two eighty three of, of this book, and they seem to have this in common, and and, and they may not be be wrong but I'm as clueless about a lot of that as uh, as the next person I mean particularly um, you know in uh, in Japan where I've done a, a couple of book tours and 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 you know my my books do fairly well I mean I, the the interviewing is always way smarter than I am you yeah know? and and, and ha has an understanding uh, of and a, and a comprehension of what I'm doing that I don't. <laughs> yeah, those those a couple that w that are in the book are pre are really sharp. Those are some really good ones in there. The ones from Japan, for sure. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're very smart there. <laughs> some of what you're saying about um, writing from instinct versus sort of doing the planning out an outline for a book um, as, as a different model that, that, is, that is less your model. Uh, it makes me wonder about your experiences teaching creative writing uh, and working with, um, mm -hmm. with aspiring writers. Um, yeah. I'd love to hear just a bit more about your approach to uh, teaching creative writing. Do you, do you encourage aspiring writers to sort of work from that instinctual mode or if you're working in a more formal workshop setting, does that sort of wind up requiring a little less instinctual work? What's your experience like with supporting that kind of work? 
yes, all <laughs> of the above. I mean, you know, the and and it um it leaves me an occasionally conflicted teacher because I'm I'm wondering, you know, uh, how much structure to give these guys and how much to to um, uh, uh, leave to them the structuring of their own writing lives and it there is a difference between uh, teaching aspiring writers at the graduate level they've they've made a certain leap as opposed to um, students at at an undergraduate level where sometimes you know my methods are not always conventional and maybe occasionally controversial. For instance, in the case of a fiction writing class, I never give them deadlines. I never give them deadlines. If it was a journalism class, I'd give them a deadline because if you're going to go out there and be a journalist, you've got to learn how to adhere to a deadline. But if you're, you're going to go out there and be a fiction writer, you've got to learn how to make your own deadline. You, you, you're, there's nobody going to be calling you up saying, you know, when's that uh, n next short story coming through, you know? Um, and, and that does throw some students for a loop. You know, the, the, the sense of, of they, 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 want a, they, they want a more defined structure. And I, I, I'm reluctant to, to give them one because they're going to, that's one of the things they're going to have to learn to construct for themselves. And, and so I, I'm constantly trying to find that balance between the, uh, too, too much structure and too little structure, between instinct and ego, between uh, encouragement and the uh, slap of reality, if you will, in the first first class uh, I teach in any quarter, I always bring in a pile of my novels and I raise the first one, Days Between Stations. This one was rejected 12 times. I raise the next one, Zeroville. This is my so-called hit novel. This was rejected nine times. Shadow Bond, maybe my most acclaimed novel. This one was, was, was rejected six times. I want them to know you know, I want them to, to, to know what they're going to be facing when they get out there. And, and if, if, they're not, if they're not ready for that, and if they're not ready to, uh, to make their own uh, structure, to make their own deadlines, to create their own regimen, to do all that, they, they should not be writers. And, and it's, it's, it, I, it's I, I, I'm sometimes loath to put it that bluntly because it's, it, it could come off as cruel, and that's the last thing that I intend. But, um, but uh, I the 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 teaching of of writing is um, is is challenging because you cannot teach talent, you cannot teach inspiration, you can't teach any of that. You can teach craft, and uh, and uh, that's about it. And and one of the biggest things you cannot teach is character. And, and that plays a, a pretty huge role in, um, in the work and in doing the work. So with, with all that in mind, what are some of the, uh, the go-to models that you use? What are the, the texts that 
show up in those, those workshop courses as um, models either for particular um, elements of craft or just here are, you know, things that every young writer should read. Uh, I, I do give them a reading list. I let them know, it, again, like the uh, deadlines, it's not required. Um, it's for their edification. There are examples of the way, you know, um, uh, uh, a work is defined by voice. There are examples of the way a work is defined by the landscape. Uh, Paul Bowles' Sheltering Sky. You know, Africa is the main character. And, and, um, and, and there are ways in which a work is defined by perspective or structure or pure plot um, or character, even in a book that would seem to be pure plot. You know, as, as Raymond Chandler continued writing from novel to novel and novel, his plots become less important and the character of Marlowe becomes more important. Um, even in a a plot-driven, what is considered a plot-driven genre. Um, so yeah, there are. I do. I do have a. I do have a number of of kind of um, defined texts um, that uh, that that give them examples of 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 each of these things that they're going to encounter as they learn to be. Writers. Scott Fitzgerald's Tender as the Night, for instance, is published in two different forms. In, in America, it, 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 it opens with what we would consider part one, and then it goes into a, a kind of a, a, a flashback in part two. And Well, the version that was published in England, those first two parts are flipped um, and is told uh, chronologically. Um, because um, I, uh, Malcolm Cowley, who, who edited, I think, the Penguin editions, um, particularly after Fitzgerald was gone, was working from notes where Fitzgerald wanted to, had decided, he wanted to uh, revise the structure of, uh, of, of a novel that had already been published and that he could not let go of. And, and if, if you read the two versions, you know, it's a good example of how the, the same material is being presented, the same story is being told, but it's being told in a different way, in a different order, and that alters the essence of the story. Um, in, uh, I wanted to switch to talk about something you mentioned uh, in American Stutter. Uh, this podcast ha has its origins as a, a podcast about David Foster Wallace and his work, and one of the big things in... I guess the Wallace world and Wallace studies in particular is, is people going down to the University of Texas at Austin to look at his archive at the Harry Ransom Center. Right. Uh, and in American Stutter, you mention a university acquiring your, your papers. Um, I don't know how much you're at liberty to discuss it uh, now, um, but I w wanted to know what more you could tell, uh, tell us about that process uh, and about what stage that's in. Yeah, I'm not, I don't know if I should mention the uh, university because the, it is still in process. Okay. No, I mean, I, I'm still accumulating the stuff, uh, the library in question, and it, it's, I'll, I'll just say it's a, it's a well-known Ivy League East Coast university. The library in question 
um, is kind of bottlenecked along with the rest of, um, of the world of, of letters. And so it's kind, of, it's kind of on hold, especially as some part of me, I think some part of me resists doing it. Um, and I haven't quite figured out why. I mean, it, I, I'm, I'm at the point where it seems to me it would make sense to do it. And so that's kind of where it's at. And I, I don't mean to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, unduly coy about it. But, you know, it, it, it's still unfolding. Since this does also begin as a, as a Wallace, uh, as a David Foster Wallace podcast, and you've, you've worked with Wallace in, uh, in part uh, when you were the editor of, of Black Clock, uh, the title story from Oblivion appeared there. And uh, I guess I wanted to ask what it was like working with or editing Wallace's work, particularly that story, uh, and maybe how you first encountered his work as well. I'm trying to think. I started, I started hearing about Wallace, I want to say, back in the mid to late 90s. Would that make sense? Would that, that be? And um, uh, I, um, you know, he was a, a somewhat um, elusive character, but I wound up getting a, a street address for him. Or maybe it was an email address. I don't, or maybe, actually, now that I'm recreating in my mind, I think I went through his agent who, who was out, out here in Los Angeles, Bonnie Nadell. And um, she forwarded my request to him just to get some work, of, to maybe get some work of his for the first issue of Black Hawk, because I knew that if anything would launch the magazine, that would do it. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, time went by and then I got a postcard from him and, uh, he revealed that he had, he had, uh, come to, um, one of my readings, uh, and, and had not, uh, presented himself and that, uh, he was, uh, you know, he, he, he liked, uh, uh, the work he mentioned tours of the Black Clock in particular, especially since the magazine had taken its name from that, and he offered a story just out of the blue. And you know, as as for editing him, that's not a gift horse you look too <laughs> far down the throat of, you know. And and I I I pretty much ran it the way he gave it to me. And that is one of his one of my favorite stories of his as well. That's uh, it's, it's well, such it a great piece of work. Hugely generous of, of, of him, of course, and um, and it was a big deal for uh, for the magazine. Uh, so now the next the next question, I guess we're going to shift over to in addition to being a novelist and a great political writer. Uh, you also write a lot of great criticism about film and music. And uh, it's one of Thank the you. one of the many uh, great angles of of encountering your work, and also, of course, in the novels, how all of it, all of this comes right. together there. But uh, the other people on this uh, interview are going to roll their eyes at me, <laughs> but I've been begging them to let me ask you a, a, a Dylan question. Um, okay. And so, because you, there's a lot in our our interviews about how transformative. Uh, 
Blonde on Blonde and other of those 60s Dylan albums were for you as a, as a novelist. And then in, I think in works like American Nomad and then in other places, you also write a lot about Frank Sinatra. And so I'm dying to ask you about your uh, your thoughts about the more recent uh, trio of, of Dylan albums of Dylan album. uh, where awesome. he does the Sinatra covers. I, I'm not... I've not really listened to them. I wasn't sure I'd be doing either Bob or Frank a favor doing so. Um, but I've, I've, I've heard from people they aren't bad, you know? Um, and uh, uh, I, I guess the most interesting thing to me was that um, uh, for all the ways that my enthusiasms for Sinatra and Dylan would seem to be at odds with each other. They must not seem that way to Dylan himself when he's recording three albums of uh, Sinatra songs. Um, um, the, um, you know, Dylan, you know, it, it, later on when, when we talk about, you know, uh, when we talk about, um, uh, my five favorite novels, you know, if I could have stretched the definition, I've talked about this in, in interviews ad nauseum, I'm sure, is, is the afternoon that I heard Highway 61 revisited and Blonde on Blonde back to back, you know, starting like, like it was a triple album, starting from Like a Rolling Stone to Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, and that was, that was, that changed my life, and it changed my my uh, my thinking about art and creativity and the rules that uh, that you can break if you're smart enough and good enough to get away with it and um, and and the way that art is a um, the way art is a is is about possibilities and and, and possibilities that uh, that you didn't know existed there before um, and, and it, it changed my life as, as, as much as, you know, the novels that I'm going to talk about later. Um, it, it, it made me a different writer and it made me um, a different person, I think. Um, there, was something, uh, there was something heroic about it and, and, I, I, and I responded to it. I'm going to press my luck on, on this as well and ask about rough and rowdy ways, particularly uh, Murder Most Foul, which, you know, maybe, dare I say, the most Ericksonian of, uh, of Dylan's songs. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, but I, I didn't know because I, I know you, you have written and thought a lot about Dylan. So I'm just sort of dying to know your, your thoughts about his most recent work. Yeah, I, I haven't heard all of that album, but I've heard Murder Most Foul. And, um, you know, it was I, I, the first time I heard it, I remember my, uh, my heart kind of sinking at the opening lines, which seemed um, um, atypically trite for a Dylan. But then it just gains this kind of power as it goes along. It just builds and it becomes a cumulative thing. And... Um, and, and that was what I, I was most uh, taken with. And I was also taken with the arrangement. It's almost got a, there's almost a, a, a chamber pop quality about it, a, a classical quality about it. And I'd never heard Dylan 
record a saw a saw like that before. Thank you. Okay, guys, I'm done asking Dylan questions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but thank you. That's thank you for indulging me. Sure. We 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 joke about. Uh, Rolling our eyes at, at Mike asking a Dylan question, but uh, he's he's gonna he could well roll his eyes at at, at the music question I've got, which is uh, <laughs> um, okay. I I admire Shadowbond a whole lot, and while we're talking about specific music, then um, I'm I'm so curious about O Superman showing up in 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 that yeah. novel yeah. Um, when there is all of the discussion of Ocean and Doa that sort of makes a clearer sense to me as being present. Mm. So present in that book, it's, it's a folk song. Dozens of people have recorded it. It it feels like it belongs to the nation in a book that Mm. is so much about nation. And then at the same time, the other song or, or one of many songs that just keeps showing up is this weird, piece of art pop from from Laurie Anderson right. and that that is a strange thing a beautiful thing that that I love very much but it's weird <laughs> and so um why that song well um you know I I wrote about yeah. a lot of songs one of the um one of the the major revisions that uh, I made to the novel uh, uh, in its final stages was that I cut a lot of songs because it was the novel was becoming much more about music than I intended to, to intended it to be, um, uh, and uh, some of those choices were calculated. Oh, Superman was I don't remember Superman as being a, a calculated choice. I I remember though being struck. By you know, I I I think the germ of that of that song's inclusion was that there are lines in the song that seem to be about yes, the twin towers, the American planes, and seem to be about nine eleven. Yes, the American here here come the planes, and of course the song came out fifteen to twenty years before nine uh, eleven, and apparently Laurie Anderson had performed that song in front of a, a concert audience post 9-11 and when she got to that part of the song there was this collective audible gasp that suddenly the song became you know ascended to this new level of prophecy that that uh, it, it hadn't it hadn't had before or it hadn't had insofar as anybody could tell and um, and then you know the, the, there was a kind of there was a, a because the you know the uh, because the novel you know is abounds maybe to a fault in in doubles um, there seemed a parallel of O Shenandoah and O Superman they're they're just they're, they're, they they kind of they kind of rhetorically they were kind of rhetorical twins even as they couldn't be more different. And one was a, a song of American past and the other was a song of American future. And both were songs of American promise and the way that promise gets broken. 
one sounding so sort of organic and one sounding so strange and art- even artificial in an interesting way. Yeah, but, the, but, but, but if you keep thinking of it in those terms, then you'll start asking yourself at some point, which is which? Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, also on the, on the, well, and this will bring together, I guess, a lot of the, the music stuff, but then thinking about movies, literature, um, all of the, the various art forms that show up in your work. Um, Mike and I are both uh, big physical media people. Um, I still buy CDs. Mike and I both still buy DVDs. Um, Mike is a, is a huge vinyl guy. I'm getting into that. Um, you mentioned in American Stutter, actually um, saving physical media when you were evacuating uh, wildfires. Um, and, and yet right. this book, as you mentioned, is, is initially published digitally. Though, as you mentioned, it may also show up right. in print. Right. Um, yep. So what are, what are your thoughts on... Um, while we sort of value physical media, like feeling like sometimes, I feel sometimes like it's fighting a losing battle almost against the digitization of everything. Do you feel that way? What's your sense of what it means to sort of have so much physical media getting sort of gradually replaced by the the digital? I, I think it's a losing battle. I, I, I think that, uh, you know, I, everybody I know, including my kids, everything comes off that screen, not a, a, out of, I, I think that, uh, you know, those of us who read hard copy books were, were this dwindling cult, you know, that, that, that are, that's bound to, 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 to meet in the middle of the forest under, under cover of night and give a secret handshake. Because nobody else is reading like that, and um, even in terms of uh, music, because I wind up listening to so much of, of the music I listen to in the car now, it's all digitalized. Um, I no longer have a CD collection. It's all on my laptop. The movies, yeah, I've still got uh, I've still got a, a select uh, Blu-ray collection. In, in large part because um, Blu-ray is still technically, by a small measure, superior to even HD uh, streaming. Um, you're you're going to get a better picture. But on the other hand, now you've got this whole new technological thing in movies, which is uh, Ultra HD, or you and it, it and and that's one one technological twist I'm just not going to keep up with. I mean, there's, there's, I've, I've sort of maxed out on, 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 on how far I can, uh, how far I can follow this stuff. And, um, and I'm still old school enough that, um, uh, even if the, the library diminishes and it does, um, you know, there's still certain books I want to keep in hardcover. There's still, there's still certain movies I want to have hard, hard copies of. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, it, it, it was naive of me in some ways to write a novel like Shadow Bond, where on the page 
there are often so many um, so many things going on textually and visually uh, and it didn't occur to me that you know they were going to put out an e-copy of this book and a lot of that stuff was going to get lost in uh, in translation the, the it was going the visual aspect was going to get lost in translation um, uh, so I you know I, I but I think you know yeah I, I, I think the, the battle is over and um, the 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 the, where the the screen and digitization are are with us for the until whatever is the next um and what do you sense is what do you sense is lost in that i don't know i you know the um well i mean you know there there's there's there there's a tactile experience that's lost um how much is that going to matter as time goes on? You know, how much will, you know, you know, when, um, you know, uh, what, what was lost when, when uh, Gutenberg, you know, invented the printing press? Something was, you know, you didn't, you didn't go down to the, the, the village rock and listen to somebody tell a story. So th that experience changed. Uh, Storytelling became a private one-to-one -one experience rather than a, a com communal one. So something's always lost and something else is always gained. And, you know, I, I don't know if, if, if you have kids or not, but the, it, when, once you have kids, there, there's this ongoing, you go in, you fall into this 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 vortex this psychodramatic vortex having to do with video games and how much do you you uh protect the kids from it and how much do you try to control it and all that and i was listening to an npr story some years ago where they were saying you know for whatever it's worth that in scandinavia for instance they've you know they don't worry about this stuff this is the future you know the the kids the kids' minds are going to develop according to uh, the new media, and and their imaginations are going to develop according to the new media, and their their ways of processing things and their ways of figuring things out are going to develop accordingly, and 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 trying to to you know control that is like trying to hold back the sea. Uh, it, it's it's it, the the future's here, and I'm probably not going to be part of it for very long. <laughs> um, well, I, I guess to bring some of that back to some of your fiction too, I guess so much of your your writing does involve the pursuit of particular media objects. Yeah. Uh, you know, particularly, I guess, in, I'm thinking in particular of uh, Zero Villain and Shadow Bond, but I think it's it's in, what's in the CK Man at Midnight as well, um, yeah. and, 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 and in, in Days Between Stations even. So um, I, I guess, I don't know exactly if I have a question, uh, a great one in this, but it, it's it does seem like a lot of the arc of your work or the, the, the fiction revolves around those sorts of quests for these particular media objects. Um, right. So I guess what um, what do you see as happening to some of the the concerns or the the things that you're pursuing in fiction uh, when it's without those maybe those objects to pursue? 
Well, it's going to change, you know, and, and, and the concerns are going to change and also the source of drama is going to change. I mean, I, I, you know, as if you watch old movies as much as I do, how many times do you ask yourself, you know, how, how totally different would this plot be if these people had cell phones? You know, as, as, they're, as they're racing somewhere to tell somebody some crucial thing and, and you know, the, the, that, that all, all changes in, in, in this particular day and age. And, um, and so uh, it, it has its own, con its own impact rather on the nature of dramatic conflict. Uh, when the big revelation, I'm, I'm sorry, the big, the big revolution has been, uh, ha has, has to do with communication and the way that's been, that's been, you know, uh, traumatized to a certain extent um, uh, with a, some, a certain element of, uh, of what only 20 years ago would, would have been a kind of future shock and it's now you know, it's it, it it's as everyday and routine as as can be. So you know, the very basic, most fundamental, most profound sources of drama are not going to change. The way people interact and the way people feel about certain things, and 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 it's just that um, the, um, the, the 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 these small little intersections of conflict. You know the roads no longer run that way, and um, and uh, the stories will will adhere accordingly. That that feels like a great sort of bookend to where we started. We started with American right. Stutter, all about a year and a half, where it feels like everything is in flux yeah. and is changing super fast. But but then but then there are certain things that. Uh, that, that feel kind of eternal still for sure. Um, right. feels like a, feels like a good, good stopping point maybe. Um, thank you so much for spending well, time with well, us. Well, listen, I, I want to thank you guys again for, uh, for doing the book and for the introduction and for this interview. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. It's a, it's a, it's a, I know it's a dream come true for me to, to get to do this and to have this book out there. And listeners, the, the reason that Matt and I did this book is not, is, you know, in part maybe for you to get it, but really it's for you to pick up the dozen or other works by Steve Erickson. Uh, that's the real stuff that y'all need to track down. And the, um, the, the book that we put together reveals how, as this, as I hope this interview does, reveals how uh, thought-provoking and wide-ranging his, his concerns and his interests are, and that's all just uh, an amuse-bouche for the, for the fiction. Uh, so please, uh, you know, run, don't walk, and, and, and pick all of that up as well. Yeah, but Steve, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. All right, well, welcome back. That was Steve Erickson talking to Mike Miley and Matt Luter. We hope you enjoyed the interview. We're here for a little bit of housekeeping, a few announcements, and other kinds of things. Contests. We got some contest details coming up here um, and some other exciting stuff. Um, so, contests. We had a contest not too long ago for uh, Jessica Anthony Enter the Aardvark giveaway. We gave away two uh, copies of that book. 
And uh, congratulations to Thierry Normando of Canada for winning the Canadian edition of Enter the Aardvark and to Jeff Downing in the U.S. Um, we've got another contest to announce, Matt. This is a really fun one. We got an email out of the blue from a Twitter account called Howling Fanbot, which is a Twitter account that just randomly tweets out quotes from Infinite Jest. Um, so through talking to Andrew from that account, he basically contacted us and said, are you guys familiar with David Jensen, who does art from Infinite Jest, and this is Water, another of Wallace's work? And we we're like, yeah, of course, uh, we've worked with him with the journal and seen his stuff around all over the place. And he's like, I want to uh, sponsor a contest in which three winners will be chosen to receive a framed 15 by 21 drawing of their choice from David Jensen's online store. And we were like, wow, that's really cool. Um, how can we help? And he said, if we could just announce the contest and basically the way you can enter is when we post on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for this episode, the Steve Erickson episode announcement, you can like the post and comment something on the post in any of those three places, wherever you choose to engage. And we will enter you into the draw for, uh, for the David Jensen contest. Uh, after about two weeks, we'll say, we'll put a cap on it, two weeks after it releases, we will pick three, three random winners of the entrance, put you in touch with Andrew, and he will uh, take your selection and he'll get, it, get your drawing shipped to you. Uh, you can visit David Jensen's Society6 store, which is like kind of one of those online stores like Redbubble or Threadless, um, society6.com slash infinitejensen, and we'll put that link in our show notes. Go check out his uh, Infinite Jensen Twitter account as well. Uh, he's also on Instagram. He's got really great uh, cartoony drawings, imaginings. He just came out with one of Madam Psychosis. That's really, really awesome. Um, so check out David Jensen. Um, we have a few new patrons to announce, Matt. Actually, quite a few. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, we put a lot of thought and work into this kind of... Um, reworking of, the, of the, the show name and all that stuff and part of that was reconsidering uh, what we could offer to patrons and something that would be you know really a lot more exciting than what we had and I think the, I think a bonus episode every month doubles your amount of concavity show episodes so if you dig what we're doing you want to support us and you want more of us uh, I sometimes find that hard to imagine <laughs> but that's okay um, you can go check out our Patreon page. We'll link to that. Um, we have Dennis Boyd joining the team. Thanks so much, Dennis. David Degusta, Kristen Manasian, Josu Ele Barietta. Uh, I had extensive emails with Josu about how to pronounce that, and they just said, only do my first name. Don't worry about the last name. But I took a shot. Mm. I took a shot, Matt. Uh, <laughs> uh, thanks so much also to Quinn Taylor and to Anthony Brown. Uh, we so appreciate all of your support. Uh, your names are on our patron page on our website as well. Um, Matt, where can people get a hold of us? Well, before we get to that, I want to mention a couple of other things, Dave. Um, please, please uh, do. One, I was recently a guest on another podcast called Beyond the Zero. Oh, yeah. Uh, and if you want to go check that out, it's on Spotify. You can just search Beyond the Zero podcast. 
Uh, it's hosted by a guy named Ben out of Sydney, Australia. And mm-hmm. uh, I had a lot. I listened I to that. a lot of fun talking books with him. Uh, it's relatively short. Yeah, you're great. Compared to our lengthy uh, marathon podcast. <laughs> Um, The other thing I wanted to mention is we've had a couple of people write in recently talking about or with questions about different variants of the first edition or first printing of Infinite Jest. And so I've gotten to display some of my publishing knowledge and collectible um, (laughs) antiquarian book collecting knowledge. And I would say if you have any questions about, you know, you found an edition of Infinite Jest that maybe looks like a hardcover, but it was bound in paperback, or it has a copyright page that says first edition, but it's a paperback, um, or it doesn't have the Volman typo on the back, but it does say first printing, or it has the print, any kind of weird questions like that, write them in. I think we're going to do at some point a roundup and maybe go through and explain all of this because I've really enjoyed getting to see other people's uh, copies of the book that they found. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are several different variants of the first edition of Infinite Jest, hardcover and paperback. So that's kind of an unexpected thing. Like It's not really the focus of our show, but I do like talking about it. Sure, and you're good at it. And I learned a lot from those uh, email correspondences that I did not know about publishing and publishing techniques and uh, what certain numbers on a publication page mean yeah. uh, that I had no idea. Yeah, so we'll talk more about that so uh, cool. at some point. But uh, I, th- I think that that's it. I actually uh, just thought of one other thing is we recently announced the dates for the 2022 David Foster Wallace Conference in Austin. Um, and that will be June 2nd through 4th and our mm-hmm. keynote speaker will be Jennifer Egan Pulitzer Prize winner author of yeah. Visit from the Goon Squad Manhattan Beach many other books um, and mm-hmm. I'm very excited about this event obviously and I really hope that you know COVID calms down and we get to have a great conference but you can go you would think that by June next year we'll be okay right? I don't. I don't know what to think. And you know, I'm hopeful. The vaccination rates continue to go up, but yeah, uh, it's nuts. Who knows? But if you want to learn more about the conference, uh, get in touch with me. I am the chair of the conference, and I'm the organizer of it. And like I say, we have our dates out there. We'll have hotel information, um, which will be pretty mm-hmm. much the same as what we had planned for 2020, but hoping to do it up even better for yeah. 2022. Uh, in in yeah. Austin, so keep an eye on that. Yeah, I can't wait. Um, should we also mention the Amsterdam conference right now too? While we're talking about Wallace conferences, so we had originally planned the 2021 conference to be in Amsterdam in the summer, and you know back when the pandemic was really really at, maybe at its worst point in January, we pushed that date back into October, thinking surely by the fall. You know, people were already getting vaccinated. Fall would be free and clear. Um, And that Mm -hmm. hasn't played out to be entirely the case, but we are going ahead with the conference. For now, uh, we have papers accepted. We have um, people from the U.S. planning to attend. We have a bunch of European people registered. And I do think, um, you know, that that we will have a conference. It might be in masks, um, but there will be 
you know, people giving papers at at the Free University in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. October twenty eighth through thirtieth this year. Uh, our good friend Alar Dundalk is heading that up. He lives and teaches there. Um, the conference is called Twenty Five Years of Infinite Jest: The Afterlives and Influences of the Work of David Foster Wallace. So uh, I won't be able to make it to that. I don't think you can. Right, I will not be there. Um, but we do have more information about it on our website, dfwsociety.org, and we, you know, hope to have some good recaps and um, some summaries and, you know, some photos and videos as well uh, after the event is over. But uh, it, it's exciting just to have it back after having 2020. Um, you know, entirely shut down. And yeah. I, I do think, you know, 2022 will be uh, a great event as well. Can't wait. All right. Where can the folks find us? So not? we are at Concavity Show on Twitter and Instagram. And we do have a Concavity Show Facebook page out there. Not as much engagement as I think Instagram is probably <laughs> our best channel. Um, it is. But yeah. I use Twitter fair amount. And yeah. uh, we're also at concavityshow at gmail.com. We love getting lengthy emails. If you're anywhere in the world, you don't use social media and you want to talk to us, we reply to every single email. Mm-hmm. So please feel free to email us about anything uh, if you want to talk about the books that we've mentioned here on this episode or in previous episodes or. Really, frankly, anything related to David Foster Wallace, I'd be happy to talk about. Yep, or music, or movies, or video games, board games, any of that talk stuff. Talk to Dave about. It's all, yeah. all fair game. Um, or if you <laughs> want to talk about pencils, or notebooks, or... Also uh, those, yeah. Baseball. Um, Antarctica, Postage, I like talking about. stamps. Stamp yeah. collecting. <laughs> Antarctica. Baseball cards. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Lots of different. You contain topics. multitudes, Matt Booker. Um, yeah. More just like jack of all trades, master of none. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, you can also find us on Patreon. We're patreon.com slash concavity show. And we also have a threadless store with. Uh, you can get a concavity show shirt or a skateboard, pencil case, you name it. It's just the, the possibilities are, are more or less endless there of what you can get our logo on so um feel free to check that out we're concavityshow.threadless.com we'll put all those links in the show notes as usual um thanks for sticking in for the steve erickson interview uh you can stay tuned for our bonus episode coming out in about two weeks in which matt and i talked to steve about his favorite novels of all time uh we had a great time with that so we're looking forward to uh to everyone hearing that who wants to so adios stay safe out there It's okay. Okay. They write, (laughs) Erickson's obscurity comes in part from the difficult categorizing his work. It's got to start over. Edit that out. (laughs) Sure. All right. And and edit out your laughing. At at me. I don't want to be laughed at. Uh, At you. Okay. Yeah, okay. 
I say this to Fee all the time. Fee, you're so funny. She's like, no, I'm not. Don't. What do you think? That. I'm like a clown. I'm, like, I'm here to meet you. Honey, I'm not laughing at at you. I'm laughing because you have a good sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> all right. 